My name's Louise Perry, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I was listening to Ezra Klein's New York Times podcast when I first heard of Louise Perry's book. Klein was talking with Michelle Goldberg about feminism and some of the backlash against it. If you're not familiar with Goldberg, she's a columnist for the Times and is firmly on the cultural and political left. So I was surprised to hear her mention two books that pushed against the traditional feminist take on sex. One of those books was Perry's. It's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. I love to read books that run against the beliefs of the person recommending them. If a Christian conservative had recommended a book by that title, I doubt I would have picked it up. But that Michelle Goldberg did... Well, that meant the case against the sexual revolution immediately rose to the top of my list of books I wanted to read. As you'll hear in our conversation, I think the book is phenomenal. Louise Perry is a feminist, but she levels a devastating critique against feminism's sexual ethic, ranging from consent to pornography to the claim that sex work is work. Toward the end of our conversation, we talk about how what she's calling for isn't much different than a return to the Christian sexual ethic. Louise Perry, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. I think you've written the smartest, most courageous, interesting, provocative book that I will read all year. And I'm super (laughs) excited. (laughs) Well, I'm super excited to talk to you because as soon as I finished reading it, I was like, I've got to talk and explore this more with you. You start the book in 2017 with Hugh Hefner being buried next to Marilyn Monroe. And in some sense, they had a lot in common. They were a part of the sexual revolution, albeit in different ways. I mean, Marilyn Monroe's the pinup, the actor. Hugh Hefner is the businessman who founded Playboy. They both were born in 1926. So again, they have some things in common. But what I found most interesting were the differences. And you used those differences to kind of frame the argument of your book. Could you explain how these two people, Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner, kind of set up what you're trying to get at in the case against the sexual revolution? I think what they demonstrate, because as you say, their lives in some senses were so similar. They were also born in the same year as the Queen. I didn't realize that until until I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a very different life course, but (laughs) back to Monroe and Hefner. Yeah, so similar in so many ways. And they never actually met, but they did interact in the sense that, to put it mildly, because Hefner printed Monroe's nude photos without her consent in the first issue of Playboy and also featured her as the cover girl. So they were sort of deeply intertwined in that sense. But also 
that I think that they demonstrate very beautifully the way that the sexual revolution had a very different impact on men than it did on women, on some types of men. So I argue in the book that the real winners from the sexual revolution are not women. They are men like Hugh Hefner, men who are attractive, high status, very driven. I mean, he had this seemingly insatiable sexual appetite, always had this kind of harem around him of young blonde women who will stay the same age even as he grew old. And that's how he died. You know, he never grew up. He was this sort of deranged, hypersexual Peter Pan who refused to ever acquire family, adult responsibility. And he seemed to enjoy himself a great deal. And he was a great defender of the sexual revolution. I mean, the eulogists when he died, many of them represented him as being this sort of unexpected feminist ally because he pushed for the pill to be made available to unmarried women and he pushed for decriminalization of abortion he didn't push for any of those things for the sake of women though of course they were in his own interest because it was you know a means of making even more women sexually available to him and to men like him whereas Monroe obviously lived a very tragic life in many ways we know surprisingly little about her childhood actually but we do know that she was in foster care she was probably sexually abused she was a victim of domestic violence in later life and of course died as a result of substance abuse and suffered from a lot of mental illness. And that is actually a very, very common story among women who become sex symbols, whose sexuality becomes their defining characteristic in public life. Um, I write a little bit in the book about some other examples of icons of apparent sexual liberation who have been destroyed by fame. And I would argue that actually the experience that Monroe had, obviously an extreme one, gives us an amazing insight into the impact that sexual liberation has on women in that in its most extreme form, I think that it destroys women, honestly. What is often portrayed in popular narrative as a historical process of liberation from old oppressive norms, that's the narrative that I'm trying to challenge in the book. And I argue that what we should really be understanding the sexual revolution as, in fact, is Yes, a rejection of old norms, the good and the bad, but also, more importantly, when those norms are lifted, what we see happen is that women are increasingly encouraged to behave more like men sexually, that Hugh Hefner is set up as an aspirational example for men and for women. And the typical preferences of women when it comes to sex are disregarded and women are encouraged to override their instincts in a way that I think is extraordinarily harmful. There's so much in there. And let's unpack a little bit of that over the next few minutes. But before we get too much further, let's stay with Hefner for just another moment. In the book, you reference a 2009 New York Times article. So Hefner is 83 years old at the time. Here's a quote from the article. It says, Mr. Hefner will concede that there are dark consequences of what he helped set into motion, but said, quote, it's a small price to pay for personal freedom. So you're saying in the book that, yes, the case for the sexual revolution liberated someone, but it was male sexuality, not women. In some sense, it seems like the sexual revolution overpromised and underdelivered. At least for women, it did. But that's not the common narrative. The common narrative is that the sexual revolution was good for women, 
But even here in this 2009 article, it says that he concedes, that Hefner concedes that there are dark consequences. What are some of those dark consequences that came in pursuit of personal freedom? So Hefner died, when Hefner died, he had seen the transformation of the porn industry, partly as a result of his you know, entrepreneurial behavior, but more importantly, because of the internet. And I think that a lot of what I write about in the book in relation to porn and things like dating apps and the real kind of sexual alienation that I think we see going on among both men and women is the ideology of the sexual revolution added to technology. So the pill obviously originally is, that's the big technology shock that sets all of this in motion. But the internet is the other huge one. And I think it's difficult to overstate quite how dark the porn industry is. Some of what porn does is that it takes fantasies that human beings have probably always had, mostly but not exclusively men, and makes them visible in a way that has appalled many feminists, for instance, you know, to go onto these sites and to see the depth of misogyny within the porn industry. But I think the other thing that it does is it doesn't just reflect people's darkest desires, it also embeds them that the way that the sites are designed is to arouse a human animal as efficiently as possible. It's all about those kind of very, very basic instincts, but then also to suggest more and more extreme forms of stimulation and to provide this kind of dopamine feedback loop reinforced by orgasm, which rewards these impulses, introduces new and more extreme versions of them, And ultimately, for the people who've become really addicted to porn, warped their sexuality to the extent that they can't even have real sexual relationships offline with real people. I think it is becoming increasingly possible to say, even among liberals, that the porn industry is not good. It's difficult to find really, really wholehearted defenders of the industry. What you're more likely to hear, though, from liberals is something like, Yes, the porn industry isn't good, but this is because sexual liberation hasn't actually been accomplished yet. (laughs) And we haven't successfully educated people. We need more freedom, more porn, more... We need more feminist porn. You know, we just need to replace this unpleasant content with more wholesome content. And we need to be educating people and educating young people. The criticism I often hear of porn, which I find to be slightly strange, is that it's unrealistic. I mean, so is a lot of entertainment. The unrealistic element of it is not inherently bad. What's bad about it is that it's like loveless, hateful, aggressive, all of this kind of stuff. And that it's very clearly training young minds to expect sex to be that way. I don't think that the answer to that is education. I don't think that the answer to that is just to introduce more feminist porn as if that's going to outcompete the other kinds of it. I think that's an absurd idea. I think that we really need to be looking at the very root of this and saying, We survived as a species for 200,000 years without an online porn industry. Why is this a human right? And most feminists on the left are absolutely not willing to have that conversation, I think, particularly in America. But it is becoming increasingly obvious quite how harmful porn is. There was New York Times investigation a couple of years ago now, which was very, very influential. The Children of MindGeek was the headline because MindGeek is this umbrella organisation that owns a lot of the major porn platforms and featured interviews with young people in particular who had been negatively affected by porn. And the young woman who was used as the main example and whose photograph was shared with the piece, sexual images of her being put on Pornhub when she was, I think, 14 and had been described 
as such. There's an ambiguity about her age in the content and they've been viewed very many times. Pornhub had profited from those views. Advertisers on the page had also profited from those views. She asked them to take it down. They didn't. Their safeguarding procedures are laughably poor. Some would argue deliberately poor because it's not in their interest to be removing this content. And this young woman ended up addicted to heroin and living out of her car as a result of this experience. She is now involved in a legal case against MindGeek and against Visa, who she alleges knowingly profited from the distribution of child sexual abuse images. So I think that there is a reckoning happening with, as Hefner described it, the dark consequences of the sexual revolution. And I think that most of us are in agreement that those consequences are real. The question is, what is their cause and what is their cure? And it's not only pornography. I was reading this morning research that shows in the last 60 years, women have gained freedom and opportunity, but their self-reported happiness has declined, at least in the United Mm. States, that women with more sexual partners have more mental health issues, which takes us back to Marilyn Monroe, who dies of substance abuse overdoses at age 36. So some of the dark consequences are these young women who are dating men who are addicted to porn and who therefore are being mistreated or being demeaned, thought of as objects. But here's the deal. What matters now in our culture is consent. And as long as everybody gives their consent to pornography or what have you, it's supposed to be okay. You argue in the book that consent isn't enough. Like it's a minimum. We can't have less than consent, but it's Mm -hmm. not enough to build a sexual ethic on. I think Mm -hmm. that surprises a lot of people because that's what we've all been told. As long as two people are consenting, they can do anything they want and it is none of anybody else's business. Help us understand why consent isn't enough. Mm. So I'd say that there's a very large gray area between consensual sex and good sex, which meets a legal threshold, but leaves one or both parties feeling distressed. It was interesting during Me Too that a lot of the examples of distress and sexual misbehaviour that came out did not actually miss that legal threshold. Like what was done was legal and no one really claimed otherwise. But it was also wrong, and it also left women in particular feeling dreadful and feeling abused. And it's very difficult to talk about that kind of, I don't know, what do you want to call it, injustice? Misbehaviour sounds far too trivial. Those kind of wrongs in the language of consent, because consent is this almost very legalistic language and also very binary. It's either non-consensual or it's consensual. Whereas a lot of what was described during Me Too was behavior that could probably be more accurately described as ungentlemanly. And that's the kind of vocabulary that liberal feminists are completely allergic to (laughs) because it's so old fashioned. And I think also because liberal feminism is very uncomfortable with the idea of men and women being different, right? On a physical level, on a psychological level, the idea that our social roles ought to be different. They clearly are different in our society and indeed in every other society, but the goal is supposed to be eventually erasing that difference and having kind of true equality. Whereas if you say 
commit to an idea of gentlemanliness or chivalry or any of these old-fashioned words. What you're saying implicitly is that men ought to be held to a different standard, that there is a particular kind of masculinity which is good and aspirational, and that, as I would argue, the fact that men are bigger and stronger than women, the fact that men don't get pregnant, the fact that men are more likely to be driven towards casual sex and having sex with someone early on, you know, it's much more likely in general to be the man who's pushing to want to have sex on the first date, not the women, just in terms of our natural differences in sexuality, which are average differences, but which are also quite marked at the population level. All of these things mean, I think, that the burden is on men to restrain themselves, to behave in a chivalrous manner. And what you're seeing in me too is men not doing that. This probably shouldn't surprise us, given that we've got a sexual culture now that is incapable of talking about such things. Let's talk about that a little bit, about the differences between men and women sexuality, because the whole idea, at least the way I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but second wave feminism came along saying that women and men should be treated equally. And of course, that's right. I mean, we should affirm sex-based rights on equal pay or other opportunities before the law. But it seemed to put women in a situation where they had to start trying to act like men. Mm. Like you said a second ago, men and women are different. Serena Williams, the kind of queen of tennis, she was retiring and she said to Vogue magazine, believe me, I never wanted to have to choose between tennis and a family. I don't think it's fair. If I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. So help us understand how men and women are different and why our culture has such a hard time owning up to that. There are the basic physical differences, which shouldn't be up for debate, but are, (laughs) bizarrely, at least in the last decade or two. Women are the ones who get pregnant, men are the ones who do the impregnating. That is true and that will always be true. Also, there are big differences in terms of our physical size and strength. Serena Williams has elsewhere commented, I think, as well, about the fact that if she were competing against men, she would be nowhere near being, you know, the greatest athlete in the world. Right. In general, women's teams, even the most elite female athletes, can be outcompeted by teenage boys once they've passed puberty. Because, you know, testosterone is a controlled substance in athletics for a reason. It has an amazing power to boost athletic performance. And male upper body strength in particular is so much greater than women's. So about double. Isn't one of the differences between men and women's sexuality is that women want meaningful sexual relationships, whereas men... Again, like you've emphasized already, we're not talking about every man or every woman. We're talking about Mm. the averages, that Mm -hmm. on average, men are more interested in casual sex or sex with multiple partners. So I guess as long as sex is seen as a biological function only, it seems like that we're going to be at odds or we're going to be at odds with reality on these issues because I don't think that's how most women see it, do they? as only a biological function? Or do they see it more? Do they want more out of it? I think women in general find it very difficult to disentangle emotion from sex, whereas men can do that, which isn't to say that men always do that. Clearly, men have hugely meaningful sexual relationships and 
desire, marriage and family, you know, all these things that male sexuality is really very flexible and it depends on the individual man and it depends on the context and it depends also on the incentive structures, you know. If you have a culture, for instance, that forbids premarital sex and obliges men to make themselves marriageable, that they're going to be able to have sex in a socially illicit way, they will bend heaven and earth to do that. Whereas if you have a sexual culture, as we do more and more, which sees sex as cheap, as consequence-free, does not require anything of men or indeed of women in order to have illicit sexual relationships. Men won't do those things, is an obvious truth. And I talk in the book about CAD and dad mode of male sexuality. You know, dad mode, I would say, is a much more pro-social mode. It's mode that leads to family and stability and loving relationships whereas CAD mode has an evolutionary function you can understand why sowing your wild oats would be advantageous in certain circumstances and why that would have evolved in men as one mode of spreading their genetic material it's a mode that women don't have because for us sex is so consequential on a physical level in the sense that you can get pregnant by sex, obviously, and that means nine months more of a pregnancy, dangerous labour, many, many years of infant care. Looked at in those terms, it's extremely obvious why male and female sexuality would be different. But I think what's been happening is that women have been encouraged by various factors. You know, it's not a conspiracy, it's a culture. <laughs> have been encouraged by a culture to suppress that instinct in themselves towards wanting the monogamous committed mode of sexuality is this like the warning to not catch feelings that you see exactly yeah that horrible phrase yeah and <laughs> don't catch feelings as if it's a disease so the idea is if you have an intimate relationship with a man and the thing is directed to women i mean i don't know if it's always said toward women but you mm. kind of know the point they're making is be mm. careful you might catch feelings about this person and of course that would be bad so here's what you do if you're starting to catch feelings or here's how to avoid catching feelings so it seems like our culture has this inconsistency where in one sense we want to say look it's just a biological thing people can do whatever they want there's no harm no foul in having lots of sexual partners but on the other hand when something like say Harvey Weinstein is purported to have sexual relationships with women and use his power that he had accumulated in the film industry to manipulate those women into those sexual acts, we're told that's really wrong. We kind of have this moral sense that there's something not right about that, that it's different than just asking someone to work overtime or, you know, that there's something that violates a person. 20 years ago, there was a movie called Vanilla Sky, and I've always remembered this line from it. It says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. Mm. So there's the sense that our bodies make promises inside of sex. Then we don't have the capacity to meet or we choose not to actually back up that promise with the rest of our life. So can you talk about this inconsistency that we have where sex is biology, except it's not when it's unwanted? I think that inconsistency comes down to the fact that we don't even if we might rhetorically pretend as if sex is just meaningless biological function, no one really feels that to be true. Almost no one, I think. And almost no one actually behaves as if that's true. And so 
what you see a lot, I think, is people paying lip service to that idea, but then behaving in a way that makes it apparent that they don't believe it. So a very good example is apparent when it comes to rape and other kinds of sexual abuse, which if you really believe that sex is just like any other kind of social interaction, shouldn't be treated as any more serious than, say, theft or fraud or some other kind of non-sexual crime, except that people don't feel that to be the case. And our legal system doesn't recognise that to be the case. There's this very, very deep instinct that actually rape is worse than theft. And it has a much worse impact on victims. Isn't that where you changed your mind on some of these things? If I remember right, you were maybe in favor of the hookup culture, or at least not against it the way you are now. And then something changed in your perspective, and you decided to go down a whole different road. And some of that had to do with rape, right? Could you explain that to us? It wasn't like a single moment, but I did do a lot of thinking when I worked in a rape crisis center when I left university. My main job was supporting young victims of sexual violence. Sexual violence destroys people's lives. I mean, I know that should be obvious, but when you see it, when you're taking calls from women who were sexually abused decades ago and their lives are still in tatters. It's amazing the extent to which it can really, really ruin people's lives in a way that nothing else really does. Is that what changed your mind on this, where you had kind of bought into some of these arguments of the sexual revolution that you saw these women who had been traumatized and you couldn't explain why they'd been so traumatized if sex is just not that big a deal? I'm not sure this is right. I'm just trying to understand. Um, I didn't ever think that rape wasn't a big deal, even though that would be consistent with the hookup culture view, really, because mm. it's just sex. I mean, the main thing that I think I changed my mind about during those years was there's a very common feminist slogan that comes out the second wave, which is rape isn't about sex, it's about power. And the idea is that rape is a tool of patriarchy. And rapists are not motivated by sexual desire. They're motivated by a desire to dominate others. I don't think that's true. Or at least it's only very partially true. Because if you look at the statistics on who victims are, who perpetrators are, in terms of things like age profile, the modal rape victim is 15. And rape victims skew very young. The proportion of victims who are over 30 is in single digits. And similarly, perpetrators skew young and age of perpetration correlates very, very closely with age of peak sex drive in men. All of these kind of data things, which I was sort of seeing on an anecdotal level at work, and which I later found were true in the population level statistics, all contributed to my increasing scepticism about some of the dominant ideas about not just sexual violence, but about men and women in general. So leaving the violence part and coming back to just... I guess what you call promiscuity or having many sexual partners. I was reading Bridget Phetasy. I think that's how you say her name. I've read her name a lot, but I've never said it out loud. I think she says it Phetasy, yeah. Phetasy, okay. So she was writing, interacting with your book on her Substack, And she says, I know regretting most of my sexual encounters. It's not something a sex-positive feminist who used to write a column for a Playboy is supposed to admit. In other words, she's talking about herself here. And for years, I didn't. Let me be clear. Being a slut and sleeping with a lot of men is not the only behavior I regret. Even more damaging was what I told myself in order to justify the fact that I was disposable to these men. I told myself I didn't care. 
I didn't care when a man ghosted me. I didn't care when he left in the middle of the night or hinted that he wanted me to leave. The walks of shame, the blackouts, the anxiety, the lie I told myself for decades was, I'm not in pain, I'm empowered. So you can't read that and have not your heart go out to her. Mm. She, I think, is saying, look, I believed a lie. I believed a lie that sleeping around with lots of people was empowering. It was a way to step into my feminism. It was a way to own my own body and do whatever I wanted and to uh, yeah, exert power. But it's left her empty. It's left her with deep regrets. This isn't supposed to have happened. I thought that the sexual revolution was supposed to have liberated, empowered women. And it seems like all we're seeing is that's left a lot of women empty. So today, people say that sex is a private matter, that no one should care what consenting adults do. We've talked a little bit about the problems with consent. Do you think that private sex is a public interest? In other words, should society care about how people conduct their private sex lives? Are you suggesting that we should make public policy changes in this area? We do already. I mean, even in an era when the consent model is triumphant, and when a lot of people will publicly talk as if sex is this meaningless biological function, there are still all sorts of taboos and all sorts of legal limits on what people can do, which don't necessarily fit within the consent model. In the UK, for instance, bestiality is against the law. It's not in all countries. There's like Denmark, for instance, doesn't criminalise bestiality. But even though the consent argument is a bit fuzzy, we still have this very clear line in the sand and we say, this is not acceptable. We interfere in people's sex lives in that sense and in various other ways as well. You know, every society does set the bar somewhere and that bar has to be negotiated, which is difficult and has trade-offs and competing interests. That's just the nature of living in a complex society. I think the problem with trying to pretend as if all that matters is consent and this thought experiment, you know, two consenting adults alone in a bedroom, who cares, sort of thing, is that actually you can't just close the bedroom door and expect private behaviour not to have a larger impact. The nature of sex is that it is networked. It's a relational act. You have sex with other people. Their behaviour influences you. Their desires influence you. A good example of that would be porn. Even if you don't personally watch porn, so many other people do that it's very difficult not to be influenced by it. And if you have a sexual relationship with someone who has ever watched porn, or who has had a sexual relationship with someone else who has ever watched porn, or even is just exposed to a very increasingly pornified public life, you know, music videos, posters on the streetscape, all of this is hypersexual, hyperpornified. You can't help but be influenced by that. And the sexual script that's presented as normal will be influenced by that. So I think it's a bit naive to the point of being dishonest to try and treat this as purely an individual thing, to try and pretend that we're just talking about atomized individuals just bumping into each other occasionally, when actually society is much more than the sum of its parts, and that matters to all of us.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. It seems like in order to come to some sort of societal consensus, we have to have some sort of shared morality. Otherwise, we all just kind of become more atomized and have a libertarian sexual ethic. You do whatever you want to do, and it won't affect me. And you're making the case, no, our private lives affect each other because we live in a society, a culture, that we are all connected in ways that are probably deeper and more profound than we'd like. So I want to stay on that idea of morality for a moment. In the book, the way I read it is that you take pains. I mean, you make a good effort to say to everybody, hey, I'm not a political conservative and I'm not a Christian. I'm not particularly religious. I'm not a Christian. That the argument I'm making is from a secular liberal perspective. And I'm just curious, why is that? Like you quote a couple of Christian authors in the book, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Why is it that you're going to links to make sure everybody knows that you're not a Christian and you're not a conservative? Why is that important to you? I mean, I personally have a complicated relationship with Christianity and with conservatism. I can tell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What I was trying to do in the book, and I think I succeeded in doing, in the sense that I have managed to get a lot of secular liberals to read it, which is what I wanted. You know, in a sense, I was trying to write the book that I wish that I had had available to me when I was 18, 19, and I was raised in a very secular liberal context. And I think it is possible to make this argument from principles that are acceptable to everyone and to make a kind of data-driven and deliberately non-partisan argument, which everyone can engage with. There have been excellent books written by Christians about why Christian sexual ethics is the best system, whereas... I don't know. I don't think anyone's written quite this book before. I think I think the niche was there. Oh, I agree completely. You've written a book that was widely read, and I've seen it get all kinds of praise and attention from people all over the political spectrum and all over the religious spectrum of people of any faith and no faith at all. But in some sense, you're making a moral argument. I mean, you're talking about men who should act gentlemanly, to put it in the, mm. the way you'd said earlier. You're asking the powerful to not exploit the weak. But what are you rooting your morality in? Like Mm. when I'm reading the book, I'm saying this is a very ethical, moral argument. I don't know if other people see it that way or not, but 
I didn't see the basis of your morality. Like, what are you rooting that in? This is Christian ethics ultimately, right? Because 2,000 years of Christianity have left their mark, even in a post-Christian culture. And so, yes, I completely acknowledge that when you take as read the idea that the strong should protect the weak, that is a Christian idea. That's not an ethical idea that is necessarily shared by other cultures, not by any means. When you prize the protection of children, these are all ideas that were radical in the first century. And even though our societies are no longer formally Christian Mm -hmm. and church going has declined very, very rapidly, they still resonate. And I think that our Western moral system is still rooted in Christianity, which is why I think it's possible to write a book that can be read by both Christians and non-Christians. And we're still kind of able to grasp onto some of the same virtues. I mean, the question long-term, and I don't really have any way of knowing this, is whether it will continue to be the case that Christian virtues remain widely valued in a society that doesn't hold to Christian theology anymore. Regardless of your faith convictions, your personal faith convictions, I take it that you're rooting for the Christian sexual ethic to almost like make a comeback. Yuval Harari, in his book, A Brief History of Humankind, says this, he says, there are no human rights, no laws, no justice outside the common imagination of human beings. In other words, there's nothing really that science gives us to root morality in. The idea of you ought to behave in a certain way is not something we're going to find in biology. He says a little bit later in the book, he says, they, meaning the Americans, got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal? Now, Harari himself is not a Christian, but he seems to recognize that apart from the Christian ethic, what does equality mean? Why not exploit the weak? And it takes me back to the first century, which you mentioned in the book, where there was a sexual revolution that took place, but it was a sexual revolution that went counter to the interests of powerful men. And what it did is it elevated the status of women and it elevated the status of children. And it said marriage is where people prosper most and good marriages cause society to flourish. So I'm wondering, are you rooting for like a return to the Christian sexual ethic? It's a really complicated question. I think that all of these systems have trade-offs. One of the reasons, for instance, that feminists object to Christian ethics is because Christians, probably as a completely natural consequence of the idea of protecting the weak, prize the unborn child in a way that most societies don't. The Romans certainly didn't, right? And that obviously places physical burdens on women that are not placed on men. Mm -hmm. And that sexual asymmetry, which isn't going anywhere, has led feminists to reject Christian ideas about abortion But there are other Christian ideas about sexual ethics, which I think feminists do hold to, even if they don't generally describe them as being Christian per se. You know, the idea that Harvey Weinstein should not have unquestioned sexual access to his social inferiors, it is in a sense a Christian idea. It's certainly not something that high-status Roman men would have held to. So I think in a sense, feminism is sort of sitting on a branch created by Christianity and partially soaring away at it. It's a very, very complicated relationship there. 
I think it is possible to both hold to Christian virtues without necessarily believing. You do? Because I, I think that happens for a while, right? That there can be after effects of the Christian ethic that the populace still holds on to. But eventually, as the culture pushes, assuming it's successful, pushes Christianity off to the margins, I think we're going to see the opposite. I mean, I'm glad that you said what you did about Harvey Weinstein, because in Rome, that was called Tuesday, right? I mean, mm. there was no case to be made against him. And you bring up the issue of abortion, which I understand is a very sensitive topic in Rome, infanticide was fine. And you know who was the young children that were killed were the women. They were the ones that were neglected. And that still happens in cultures around our world today, very, very sadly and tragically. There's a reason that women were some of the first followers of Jesus. There's a reason that women flocked to the early church because they were given status and rights and equality and respect and opportunities they had never had before. Mm. So I wonder if as the feminist cut off the branch of Christianity, I wonder if that's going to end the way they want it to. I don't know. <laughs> You're right. I mean, the 1960s are really should be understood as a second reformation, a rejection of Christianity per se, not just a rejection of Catholicism. And it's still only a couple of generations on. How's it going? Well, <laughs> not entirely well, as I tell you in the book, but we're still so infused with Christian ideas that we don't describe them as such, that that reformation hasn't actually completed its task. Whether it does, whether there's a counter-reformation, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I don't think there's any way of predicting for sure. So you end your book giving some advice to people, and essentially you're saying, hey, you should listen to your mom. <laughs> yeah. And when you wrote that chapter, did you feel like you were maybe betraying feminists or betraying your generation or... You know, not many people want to come back and say, I should have listened to my mother because my mother knew best from the beginning. Was that hard to admit that or no? Had you always listened to your mom and knew she was right from the beginning? My mom loves that chapter, obviously. <laughs> I um, bet she does. <laughs> um, I mean, it's an alarming thing to say now in a very, very modern era. I don't think it's an alarming thing to say in most historical moments when veneration for elders and ancestors is extremely mainstream that's not just a christian thing either i mean confucianism hinduism whatever sort of tradition you want to name will normally prize the experience of older people i think we are the weird ones in thinking that actually young people are uniquely inspired and that young people can just reinvent the wheel every generation yeah, there's a whole movement to reject the past because in the past they weren't as enlightened as we are now. We're going to get on the right side of history. We're not like those racist, homophobes, misogynists of the past. We're a little smarter, a little more enlightened than they are. Yeah. But you're calling us back to something more historical because I think you're calling us back to a Christian sexual ethic. But also you're just calling us back to something even more recent. And that is our parents probably knew more than we realized. Yeah, because they lived it. I dedicated the book to the women who learned it the hard way. And it's something that Bridget Bettersee writes about in her essay, that that feeling of having to go through it and discover that actually this is all wrong. And actually you shouldn't have to go through it. We should be telling young women the truth from the get-go. And I don't think we are in this culture. Well, your book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, is a fantastic book. I recommended it to lots and lots of people. Are you working on anything else right now or no? I haven't started another book yet, but I am I'm thinking about one. I'm thinking about writing a book called The Case for Having Kids. Oh. 
<laughs> you are killing me, Louise. Pan- companion piece. <laughs> but it's very, very early days. I can't wait to read that book. Obviously, you have more than this book in you. You can just tell that by reading the first one. But how ironic that you would then come out with a case for kids in the sense that that's another issue in the feminist world, right? Yeah, very much so. More and more people are putting off childbirth. Population rates are declining. Mm. I look forward to reading that book. Can't wait. As a person with four kids, I, I can't wait. <laughs> I've just got the one and the next one might get in the way of the book writing, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.